if I can't freely choose to love, then there's really no such thing as love. If I'm, if I can only do what I have to do, if I'm being controlled, then that really stops the very idea of relationship. It stops the very idea of love. It stops the very idea of freedom and we become puppets. Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. That is a quote from C.S. Lewis, and I love that quote because throughout my life, Christianity uh, itself as a whole has been a very big part of my life. I've been through the ins and outs of the, of, of the church different churches uh, i've experienced different churches not that i've been a member of different churches but i've visited different churches i've learned a lot from my friends who go to different churches and i remember when i was younger we would have all these theological debates uh whether sabbath is a saturday or sunday whether we should eat pork or not or follow these rules but that's besides the point um there is something to Christianity, in my, from my belief, not saying that you should believe it yourself, but from my belief is that there's something about it that speaks to the person and pulls you and gives you hope. I don't, I haven't seen that in anything else, in in any other uh, type of of religion, and I'm not saying that religion is what's right for you, but. If you're if you're listening to this, our my guest today is Pastor Doug Ward, and we are going to talk about Christianity as a whole in itself and how we see things, the challenges of Christianity these days. Is it still relevant to our daily lives? My quick answer is yes, but there are legitimate um, concerns towards Christianity, and we do raise these. I have myself uh, have been critical of a lot of uh, organized Christianity. But I hope you stick with us and you uh, listen to our podcast today. We we ask the hard questions about what challenges Christianity these days. Is it atheism? Is it the philo- philosophy of the world? Or is it ourselves that we, that we make it harder for other people to look at us in such a respectable manner? We'll talk about it today, and I hope you come and listen to us. Two, one. Our guest today is uh, Doug Ward. He is the senior pastor of uh, Mundelein Church and adjunct professor of the New Testament at, at Olivet Nazarene University. Pastor Ward has been a pastor at Mundelein for 15 years. He completed his master's in New Testament at Wheaton College and his PhD coursework in biblical theology at Marquette University. He is the author of I Object, Uncommon Answers to Common Objections to Christianity, available now on Amazon. I will leave a link below to the uh, pa- to Pastor Ward's book. And uh, Pastor Ward, welcome to the Free Mark Podcast. Thank you. It's gr- great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, Pastor Ward, first question I really uh, uh, 
you know, this is the first one, first episode I have, like, kind of talking about religious themes and talking about spirituality. So why Christianity? What attracted you to Christianity? Well, I, you know, I suppose I have the easy, the, the short answer and the long answer. The short answer is that I grew up in a Christian home and uh, with Christian parents, sort of. Um, when I was about five, my, my dad made other decisions of life, decided he didn't want to have a family anymore. And so my, my single mom moved back to her hometown with a wonderful, both my dad's parents and my mom's parents who were wonderful examples of Christianity. And so the short answer is, um, I saw the reality in the lives of a grandfather on one side and a grandmother on the other. And their example was so sterling and outstanding, it made it very easy. As I've gotten older, um, I did master's work and PhD work. Um, I came to appreciate the intellectual side of Christianity a lot more than I did when I was younger. And I realized that um, it, it, it offers answers and a perspective and a foundation that other things just don't. And I found it to be not only real, but I found it to be logical. I found it to be accessible. I found it to be fulfilling. Um, and I found it to be something worthy to base my life on. Um, so when I was younger, it's because I grew up in a Christian home, never really had a time when I, you know, fell away or, or rebelled or anything like that. I certainly flirted and had thoughts about other belief systems and um but the longer answer is the older i've gotten the more the academic intellectual side of christianity is what really not only attracts me but keeps me grounded well i saw that you had your uh you actually finished your coursework and phd uh would you say that uh all, all your years of research it has affirmed your your belief your faith and 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 this set of set of beliefs in the system it, it, it affirmed it in a different way. So it's not like it, it said, hey, you're right about everything. But there were parts that kind of the, the rug got tugged a little bit, you know, out from underneath me, forced me to uh, find new ground, forced me to more solid ground, to question some of my presuppositions and to be sure that everything in my belief system matched up. Because if it didn't match up, if there was some thread that was sticking out, you know, made me want to pull it. And then, of course, you never pull a thread, then the rest of your shirt kind of bunches up and have to find a way to balance everything out. So it, it kind of forced me into uh, some new ground, questioned some of my former presuppositions, and I found myself um, in a kind of a brand new place that was much more satisfying than the old place. You know, uh, somebody who is kind of looking at us from the outside, you know, uh, somebody who's not a Christian, they, they look at Christians like, oh, man, it was like these weird beliefs, you know. Uh, I mean, how how can I tell a difference between like, you know, one Christian to another? I mean, there's so many different ways to go about it, so many different churches. I mean, how did you find your way into the to the, your specific set of uh, Christian belief? Well, I think, that, again, probably the easy answer is, is I was kind of raised in uh i was raised in nazarene that's kind of for if those of you not familiar and there's some good sized nazarene churches in dallas it's um i would call it a methodist who still believes their book of discipline um 
And so a conservative Methodist or Wesleyan, if that means things to you, um, Arminian in the Protestant world, you have a divide between. I am very familiar. Yeah, Calvinism and Arminianism. And so I'm kind of on the Arminian side of things. Um, and what's interesting, my master's work is in kind of a school that was largely reformed. And then, of course, my Ph.D. work was in with the, the Jesuits in a Catholic institution. So it gave me this really rich tapestry of different things to be exposed to. However, whether you're Baptist or Methodist or Catholic or Orthodox or Nazarene or Presbyterian, if you look at the statement of faith of all of these institutions, they all will say humanity is born sinful. We are lost. We're in need of redemption. Um, that redemption came through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Talks about uh, the possibility of, of holiness. Talks about um, um, that there exists in us, in humanity, we're not born good. We're not even born a blank slate. We're kind of born a little ornery, a little cracked, with a little propensity toward doing what we shouldn't. Now, that propensity is different for everybody. Um, but all of these will have very similar statements. And so whether you, you know, some of the government governmental structures are different than all these denominations. Some of the um, hierarchies are different. Um, like going to a room of Baptist and tell them they need to have a Pope. That's not going to go very well. Uh, go to a room of Catholics and tell them they have to have local church control. That's not going to go very well. Um, so we all have our different things we emphasize, but these foundational truths and all of them are basically uniform across the board. Um, and I think sometimes we get, because we have the freedom to do so in our culture, we get so bogged down to the different expressions, we forget how much unanimity there is in the basic belief systems of every stripe of uh, Christianity. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned a Wesleyan and the Arminian tradition. You know, um, I, I I grew up in that Wesleyan Arminian tradition of Christianity, and I've always had debates with my Calvinist friends about especially like uh, the fact that a lot of my friends who are not christian who are not familiar with the churches they, they tend to kind of define us in the worst way possible and in many ways not exactly how i view things so um and as and one of these things is that you know uh where, where they would say uh, everything's determinist or it's very Calvinistic type of thinking. And I know we're kind of talking as, uh, kind of esoteric here, but, uh, but that's one of those things I've encountered with a lot of the, a lot of those who are not Christian. They're very, uh, they, they define us in, in the, in the worst ways they could find it. Like they pick and choose from mm -hmm. which, from all the different denominations and try to define us in those worst ways possible. I mean, uh, how, how do we defend ourselves in terms of apologetics with these kind of things? You know, um, I actually think that some of the, our critics here have a point. So what they've done is, is they've actually listened to us. They've listened, you know, you go to the big mega churches and not, not against mega churches, but they tend to be Calvinist. Um, and even some of our people in our pews will talk about, oh, God has a perfect plan for my life. Or, you know, I get sick, God's trying to teach me a lesson, and we casually, without thinking, use language um, that leads everybody to believe that we believe in a deterministic God. 
And a lot of the people that I meet that are no longer in church, it's not that they're out of church because no one has ever told them the good news. They're not in church because they used to be in church. And they heard something there that they can't get past. So they've been told that God has planned everything for your life. And then they lose a one-year-old baby to bone cancer, or their wife dies of breast cancer at 35, or someone they knew was hit by a drunk driver. The drunk driver walked away, and the family in the minivan was all killed. And they say, why doesn't God stop it? Why? God knew it was coming. And, well, there's a whole lot of presuppositions there that I'm not sure that I agree with. And so often I'll meet someone and they say, I don't believe in God. And I'll say, okay, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And they'll start to go down some of this road. And my response is, I agree with you. I don't believe in that God either. And it starts to open up a conversation. Um, And there's a lot here that I think culture misunderstands about Christianity or assigns this kind of popular theology, this very simplistic cartoon theology, and applies it broadly, and they don't realize that except for probably a few strains of Calvinism, um, Catholics don't share that, Orthodox don't share that, Wesleyan, Arminian um, side of the Protestant world don't share any of those beliefs either. Even if it's become kind of a cartoon shorthand version, and I think it hurts us, and I think it hurts our ability to talk to culture if they don't understand where we actually stand on some of these things. And um, that's why these conversations are valuable, I think. Well, now that you've touched on it, so um, and it's, a, it's, it's very telling like that when you said that, you know, uh, people get, it seems like they, they're, they, they're coming from a place of pain. Like they were hurt by God and they're, they're a bit angry at him. So when somebody asks you, why does God allow all this pain, all this suffering to happen? Well, what, how would you answer that? Well, th- th- that's, that's kind of a long answer. Um, the first answer is, is you're assuming there's a couple things. First, it, it depends on who I'm talking to. Um, But the one thing I would tell people is a God that steps in and stops all suffering also is a God that would have to step in and stop all good decisions. If he's stopping every decision that could possibly bring harm or pain to somebody else, then he is stopping the very idea of human freedom. And if I can't freely choose relationship if I can't freely choose the love, then there's really no such thing as love. If I'm, if I can only do what I have to do, if I'm being controlled, then that really stops the very idea of relationship. It stops the very idea of love. It stops the very idea of freedom and we become puppets. And that's a very high price to pay. It seems to me. The second thing I would say is, to the person, I'd say, you're assuming that God controls the future with certainty. And if God allows humanity free decisions, then that also is a step that limits the capability of God to control everything. Um, And so we need to be careful. I think the idea of human freedom 
means that in some ways God is self-limiting because God wants us to enter into a relationship with him. If we cannot deny, if we cannot rebel, then we also cannot freely choose. And relationship becomes impossible. Love becomes impossible. Worship becomes impossible. And um, I think God values freely chosen relationship more than he would choose the obedience of puppets on a string. Somebody uh, uh, once told me that that if love doesn't allow you to choose, it's basically abuse, some form of abuse. So oh, I would agree with that. Yeah, so I think like w the way you're describing it, like you he's giving us this free will to be able to choose, which in turn gives us the freedom to reject him, which is the mm -hmm. expression of love to be able to be able to make that free choice ourselves. But Sometimes I say, sometimes someone say, well, what about the God of the Old Testament, right? Uh, let's let's say we read the Old Testament, which is actually where I'm at right now in my I'm actually rereading the Old <laughs> Testament right now, and you, you see this almost like a vengeful God. You 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 see this God who's like, well, if you don't do this, you know, uh, they don't obey, um, they don't let my people my people go. I will set all these plagues down in Egypt. I will flood the earth. I will. Put their cities on fire how do you reconcile that god with the god uh, that we believe in today i you know i think that there are some things in the old testament that i think we need to keep in proper context so for instance um the god so let's say let's go back to abraham um and I think it's genesis 17 you have this scene where god and abraham have this meeting <laughs> And Abraham, and God tells Abraham, Abraham, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going, this outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah has become so great. I'm going to go see if what I've heard is true. And if it is, I'm going to wipe them out. And Abraham starts this long debate session with God. God, don't do that. Why would you do that? If you do that, you're not going to be seen as a loving God. What if there's 50 people there? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? And there's this intense bargaining session down to 10 or 15 or something. So even in these stories you have, and in that story, you clearly have this word, and God changed his mind about what he threatened. The same wording happens when Jonah. Jonah, go tell him in 40 days I'm going to wipe out Nineveh. And Jonah goes, well, Jonah had to be convinced but once he goes and says, God's going to wipe you out in 40 days, Nineveh repents and goes, oh, my goodness, we need to be obedient. And that same word is used. God changed his mind about what he had threatened to do to Nineveh. Um, Saul and the Amalekites. Um, in the story, God said, wipe out all the Amalekites. Saul doesn't. His kingdom gets taken away. And then other people, it says, go in and wipe out the Amalekites. But then later in the Old Testament, we see the, see the Amalekites again. So it should lead us to a couple different things. First, some of the God is always being pulled away in relation to what humanity does. Secondly, even in these odd stories like Saul and the Amalekites, maybe there's something else going on. Like maybe they're trying to the whole lesson in that was not what happened to the Amalekites. The lesson was why did Saul lose his kingdom? And Saul was disobedient. 
And hundreds of years later, when they wrote the story about what happened to Saul, you know, I'm not sure the fate of the Amalekites was very high because later in the Old Testament, you still have the Amalekites hanging around. So there's tension there. Maybe that story's not exactly, maybe all the Amalekites didn't get wiped out. Maybe this was something localized and we're not in touch with that culture enough. Um, but I think that there is a God that even then, even, you know, is, is always willing to preserve the remnant in um, Sodom and Gomorrah, is willing to work with a family, is willing to keep showing grace to Jacob, even as he deceives Esau, is always going down the line, always works through a prostitute, Rahab, always takes care of Esther. You have this... Um, this faithful remnant that's referred to in Isaiah and Jeremiah, and 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 you always have this idea of, of humanity falls away, we get sent into exile, and then God always restores and redeemed. And so it's not this destruction. He's always ready and willing to meet those who want to follow him. Um even in a story like the Amalekites in the Old Testament, one of the reasons why they're being judged is because, well, they they laid in wait and killed the Israeli women and children when they're wandering in the desert out of Egypt and burning the crops. And, um, and so this was in relation to something that was done over and over and over again. So yes, there's a God who wants to, who wants to say, these are my people and I'm going to fight for my people. But there's also God who's willing to redeem even Israel's enemy. And by the way, after Nineveh turns things around, Jonah's mad and says, God, why would you do this? I knew I I knew that if you sent me here that they would repent and you would relent and not destroy them like I want you, like I want you to. And so even in the Old Testament, God was disappointing even his own people because he wasn't wiping them out like they wanted him to. So I think sometimes we overdo the one part of the God in the Old Testament at the expense of the God who's always redeeming, always working, even with a few people, and always willing to change his action just if people would respond. So I think we need to keep those things in tension. Sorry for the long answer. No, no, no. I like long answers. You know, the the long answers gives us like a good thread that we could pull and kind of do a deep dive into what the uh, the thinking, the inner thinking of the uh, the characters are, and all of us who are believers. You know, we we look into these characters and see the humanity and to see like the examples of what they have done before and kind of learn from them. And uh, for those that don't know, uh, in my audience, uh, Saul is the first king of Israel after the, the nine judges. And he ruled, and he was supposed to be the ruler, uh, the vaunted ruler for of God. But until he, you know, he made a lot of wrong choices and tried to kill David, and eventually was killed himself. So it's amazing that you know it, that all these are very human stories. But at the same time, uh, there's a lot of it that we could see in ourselves. Even through David's story, you know, and I'm kind of going into my, my background here, like going even in David's story, like he has made such terrible decision with uh, Rahab and sleeping with uh, with with uh, what's his name? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. There you go. Bathsheba. Yes, Bathsheba. Yes, uh, where he made that really wrong decision and slept with somebody, someone else's wife, and he 
you know, he, and God said, you know, you will die, she will die. And eventually he relented and unfortunately the baby died. But out of that, Solomon came out of that, out of that marriage. Mm -hmm. So there was, it seems like God is trying to do some good in what seems to be a bad situation. And down the line from that Solomon, eventually we come to the line of Joseph and, Day and Jesus. But of course, uh, you know, uh, for the audience that are kind of wondering where it's coming from, I'm just trying to trace the lineage of what happened in, in the bad situation that kind of, from my perspective, that God kind of made good out of it. But trying to relate uh, all this stuff from the Bible to today's culture, it seems that though Christianity seems to be receding from our culture, yeah, even... I mean, you look at just look at the movies, look at even the magazines. You, you look at everything in the in the uh, the marketing world. It's just so antithetical to what the concept of a Christian life should be. Is Christianity still even relevant today? Well, um, often the Christianity that people see is probably not relevant. And our desire to be relevant, we are making ourselves irrelevant. If pretty soon, if culture sees no difference between us and the larger culture, then why have reason to follow us? Uh, I'm 56. I remember as a child in my church growing up, it certainly felt like that we were way over here and culture was way over there. And it just, I didn't fit in. I mean, I grew up in a time when, you know, I remember in sixth grade, we were doing square dancing in gym class. My mom found out about it and wrote me a note that I couldn't participate in gym class because there's going to be dancing, um, even though it was square dancing. Um, now, there's almost nothing worse than square dancing when you're a junior high boy. But the one thing that might be worse is being the one kid forced to sit in the bleachers and everybody else is square dancing. Um, but he just felt that tension. I knew we weren't part of culture. And so Sunday got to be this great time of celebration when all the people that weren't part of culture kind of, we got to enjoy each other. Um, but that's not the case anymore. We fit in so well that I'm not sure there's much that discerns, that, that makes us different than the culture at large. For instance, I think if, if, the church modeled marriage, we wouldn't have so many alternative ideas of what marriage is. If we're allowing, or if we model divorce and other dysfunction at not much different rates than the rest of the world, then why would we expect the world to watch other parts of what we do? If we started living it, then I think it becomes very, very relevant again. But that might require a little, I don't know, walking away from some things. And like my joke is uh, on Sunday morning, I think a lot more of our people know who the next bachelor is than they know what the four gospels are. And that's probably a problem. Um, and it shows where we spend our time. And so in, in a lot of the world today, probably not that relevant, but it should be. And I think if we lived it different, it would be. Yeah, it's funny you, you mentioned that, and um, I grew up as a Seventh Day Adventist, so oh. there's a 
there's a definite when I was growing up there, there was a huge gap between the culture and how you know how I was living my life you know uh, it's almost like it's almost like as, as soon as Friday sunset go comes you, I can't do anything I am going out with my friends until Saturday sunset and even going out you know there's no, like like you said no dancing so that is kind of funny how like I kind of just when you mentioned all that kind of brings back all those memories to me. Yeah. But yeah, um, I was reading this one article. I can't seem to find it now, but there was one article who was talking about uh, young people leaving, not just my church, but all the Christian churches, like was across the board, almost, almost 50% of the young people. And I mean, young people like millennials and younger, just, mm -hmm. they just flat out leave. And one of the biggest complaints was just that they're just not authentic. Uh, the churches are not authentic anymore. And just they just don't seem to find that fulfillment in it. Yeah. So in relative to what you were saying, it seems that if there's no authenticity and there's no fulfillment, why why settle for, for the fake and you could just go all the way down out in the world? Yeah. No, I think that's true. I think when we if we go to church and we go home and mom and dad complains about the music choices or what the pastor was wearing and they can't believe this person did that. And then if, but if they go home and hear nothing but love for other people, I think that makes a difference um, with how they stay. I also think that there are still Christians that fight battles um, that probably aren't worth fighting so I'm just, I'm not trying to jump to a different topic at all. Um, but when the battle we're fighting is evolution versus creation, we might be losing some kids in the process. I mean, um, um, they're talking about big questions of existence. Um, there are some really big questions here. You know, uh, uh, Stephen Meyer just wrote a book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, which is wonderfully rich. But if we're still talking about uh, some very basic, and we hold it really tight, that the only way you can be a Christian is to believe in six literal 24-hour periods 5,800 years ago, um, I'm not sure we've given some of our kids any room. And I think that's dangerous. And, 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 and I'm not saying there's room for a lot of different people in the tent, but we got to be careful who we're excluding from our tent. We need to be very careful with our language and be careful that we're giving our kids room. Christianity is bigger than the little narrow stream that they grew up next to. It's actually a pretty wide river with lots of different currents. And if we're ready to just cast aspersions to every current, but our little stream well, we might get what we sow when our kids leave. Well, um, I believe in I believe in some sort of evolution, but it's not that I, I think that there's like a, that we were created in six literal days. Um, I'm probably the outlier uh, from in my church, but I do believe in a much much older Earth. Uh, in many ways, I probably eons older. But uh, but coming to that, I mean. It just sounds like uh, what, when we put our kids in that kind of situation, it's like you're putting them against like with, with the with the belief of the heart and belief of the mind. It's like you're fighting, having religion and science fight each other. I mean, does it have to be like that? 
No. Any legitimate science, any legitimate science that is earnestly sought after will eventually lead its way back to the creator. There are people, well, you know, probably a lot of your uh, people who watch this will, will know the name Francis Collins, who's director of the National Institutes of Health, head of the Human Genome Project, done wonderful works with, you know, the DNA and, 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 and the cell. He was, he was an atheist. And his work in microbiology led him led him to God. That that you have these this all these bits of data on these cells on the simplest of cells that instructs what kind of cell it is when it's going to do this what its task is going to be it is this is this infinitely intricate code. He says, how do you have this this intricate programming and yet deny there's a programmer? Um, and so even a much larger picture of creation, um, you know, uh, Einstein's cosmological constant, which I think, if I'm remembering this right, is 10 to the 92nd power. That's how fraction of a fraction of a fraction it is. Anything above that, the universe would have just flown apart. Anything below that, it would have collapsed on itself. But to be so precisely fine-tuned to not either just explode or just contract, to have that intricate of design, again, screams a designer. And so I don't think we have anything to fear. And I think when we, when we act like we have something to fear, we are, we are almost leading our own children away instead of saying we have nothing to fear from this. It's, it's gonna, all going to lead back to God anyway, which I think it does. It's funny you mentioned Einstein, and um, I, I was hanging out with a friend of mine one time who who worked with some of the top physicists in the uh, national laboratories over there in Tennessee. And he was he told me that most of the physicists he he knew he worked with were either Christian or very spiritual in 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 their outlook in life, as opposed to a lot of the biologists that that they work with who are very in the atheist uh, more of the evolutionary uh type of of outlook and um what uh, he kind of he actually showed me uh, the well it's kind of it's very complex but he was he was uh drawing this um existence of god in 10 dimensions and he 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 kind of described it to me in, in in every detail which is i can't even remember anymore but by the end of that, I was like, "Wow! Uh, if he, if only he would be able to teach uh, this to <laughs> to the public." But yeah. hopefully, maybe one of these days it'll, it'll come out. But uh, even people like uh, like physicists like Michikaku said that that it's impossible to think that there's no some sort of creator out there uh, that you know that or some sort of designer or uh, or they call it the engineer, you know, uh, some sort of great engineer out there that that fine tune the the universe as it, as it is that we live in. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and I completely agree. Um, you know, we he, even have in the historical record, let's just say your average evolutionary biologist who would say evolution, you know, exists on this continuum. But that's not what happened. You have all, all of a sudden you have these stops and all of a sudden these bursts of new forms of life, like the Cambrian explosion 
And then you have, you know, this, this dinosaurs get wiped out. All of a sudden you have mammals and you have these, all of a sudden you have these bursts. And it's not this, this gradual change. It's all of a sudden you have these, these all of a sudden new forms of life that explode. And, um, and, and there's a lot of things, you know, the irreducible complexity, you know, you have like, how does the lens of an eye, which filters light and shapes the light, how does that get affected by evolution where the, which would be meaningless unless there's the back of the eye, the retina, that's also developing to catch what's being shaped by the lens. How do you have these two things that are developing at the same time? And you know, it's, 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 it's how do you get these two complex structures all of a sudden arrive that work together or the, the whole apparatus wouldn't work at all. Um, we actually have quite a lot of intellectual academic firepower in our ammunition bin that we rarely recognize or use. And I think that's a shame. Well, you know, um, I hope to actually speak with one of these physicists one of these days and kind of do a deep dive in these, uh, in these subjects. Um, but like kind of drilling back to the, to the culture of things, you know, people have, have people understand how do we, how do we get people to understand that, you know, that, that there's more to Christianity than just what they see it, the, the cartoon, the, the cartoon that there's, that general culture has been shown as to be, how do we go out there and be able to talk to people about this? It's, it's kind of hard. I mean, when you say you're a Christian and then immediately you have that wall come up and say, Hey, Oh, uh, I don't want to be thumped by the Bible, you know, hold off there, buddy. You know, <laughs> how do we approach people and be able to tell them, Hey, you know what? It's not that bad being a Christian. It's not scary. We're not going to bite. Uh, how, how, do, how do we, how would you do that? Well, one of the things that I do, you know, is uh, sometimes it's, it shouldn't be, a secret. If you look behind me, I, I, I tend to golf from time to time. That's kind of my habit. And uh, I was trying to figure out those are those are golf balls or those are baseballs because it's, it's kind of hard to see here. Those are all golf balls, and they're all uh, logos on them of golf courses I played with my son. So there's 72 in there, and uh, we've done more than that from everywhere from Texas to Scotland. So and a bunch of places wow. in between. So, um, um, so what I do sometimes on, on a golf course, and I've, I've, I've talked to buddies, Hey, listen, when someone asks me what I do for a living, I'm not going to say I'm a pastor. I'm going to say I'm a, I'm a college professor, which is also true because if I say I'm a pastor, they get weird. You know, they, they get weird. They apologize for swearing on the fourth hole when they miss the putt. And then they, you know, they, they act real strange. Um, you know, I think what this idea that people get, they get the whole rules thing. You know, they get the, the person that's going to say, you shouldn't have done that. You know, watch your language and don't do that. And they're, they're going to, and I think if this, I think we, they need to see first that we love them. Um, and I think we can't judge anybody early. You know, we can just say, Hey, I'm not here to, I'm not here to, I'm not here to change you. I'm not here to do anything. If you ever want to talk about something, I'm here to talk about it because, uh, you know, I think G this Jesus guy has a lot more answers than probably you think he does. And I would recommend that you look him up and listen to him a little bit. Um, he lived in a culture, too, that ignored 
the little guy. He lived in a culture that that overlooked little kids. He looked at a culture that mistreated women. He looked at a culture, and we can use some of those examples. And yet his desire was to connect to people. And his answer was not to say, throw a rule book at him, but his answer was, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, let them take all the anger and let them kill me. Um, so you don't have to face that anymore. And then I'm going to rise again. So you don't have to worry about death or disease or um, diminishment or degradation. I'm going to take care of all that for you. It's actually quite a good story if you ever want to hear it. So I think we, we, we can't share judgment, but we need to share the similarities between that culture and this culture, Jesus' response then, and I think what Jesus' response would be now. Speaking of uh, what Jesus responds then and now, uh, you wrote a book about uh, Christian answers to uh, common objections to Christianity. Uh, tell us about that book. Tell, tell us uh, like, the summary of the book, and uh, you know, why, why did you write that book? Well, I'm sure some of the if not most of your viewers will be familiar with some of these names, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, uh, Douglas Murray, the late Christopher Hitchens. Um, oh, there's definitely. a, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's called the new atheism. And their whole thing is that, that, that religion isn't reasonable. Faith isn't logical. It's mere superstition practiced by children and unsophisticates. And anybody who thinks would reject Christianity, and, and they have some of the things, like, uh, and some of their arguments are there's no proof of God, uh, but we talked about earlier, why does God in the Old Testament have such an anger problem, um, um, why are there so many different denominations, why are, are women treated as second-class citizens, why are there so many errors in the Bible, I mean, they'll, and they'll bring out, you know, all these discrepancies and all these um, um things that you really can't harmonize in scripture and use it as a weapon. And what I'm trying to do, this is for the parent. This is for someone whose kid just went off to state university and got the cool sociology professor that did nothing but rip on Christianity for the whole semester. And then when their kid comes home, not to freak out, not to react in anger, but maybe just to familiarize themselves with the argument and maybe just a few ways to just be able to have a conversation with their kid or their neighbor about some of those objections or some of those arguments that people use against us. You know, it seems like, uh, you know, when I, when I was growing up, I, I heard about Christopher Hitchens and even, even George Carlin, you know, I would hear like their arguments, you know, uh, and because they were pretty popular, but you know, they were all over media, but I feel like we will lack that uh, intellectual kind of like an intellectual dark web, Christian intellectual dark web, and um, it wasn't until I discovered um, his name, David Berlinski. I don't know if you're familiar with David Berlinski. Right, right, right. The, the, the Devil's Paradox, David the Berlinski. Devil's, yeah. Devil's Delusion. That was Devil's Delusion. That's it. Yeah, yeah, I read that book. <laughs> really good book. And I felt like, you know, I felt like we had a standing chance after reading that book. And, um, and it was – it kind of th threw me into like a, uh, a hole and said, you know what, there – is a much deeper philosophy in Christian. That's quite kind of dived into more. I thought I, I thought I knew what I had, what it meant to be a Christian, but you know, it's funny because Berlinski is a, is an agnostic and kind of started me off into that through my rejourney into Christianity, sort of, you know, and uh, kind of helped me find find my way back into it. And I felt like we need to have 
to foster that again uh to be able to have that kind of intellectual power yeah. like at c.s lewis and you know even tolkien mm-hmm. you know th- those are strong christians back then and they, they influenced culture in many ways in, in their time and we need to have that again we do yeah we- so one of the you know a lot of people familiar with christopher hitchens may be less familiar he has a famous brother peter hitchens who is a very strong and vibrant Christian and a defender of the faith. And you can search YouTube a little bit and you can find a famous debate that Christopher had with his brother, Peter, I believe in Grand Rapids, Michigan, about 10, 12 years ago. That's, that's about two hours long, but might be worth a listen. You know, so if I can give an example that I might maybe for my book, one of the things that you'll frequently find in scholarship is this idea that there are things in the New Testament that are mistakes that you cannot reconcile. And that's true. So, for instance, um, if you ask someone, how did Jesus get his cross? He was pretty beaten up. How did he get it from his place of trial up to Calvary? And someone will answer, hey, no, they pulled a guy out of the crowd and made him carry it. And my response to that person would be, you're absolutely right. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this guy named Simon that got pulled out of the crowd, carried Jesus' cross for him up to Calvary. But in the Gospel of John, John is very adamant that Jesus carried the cross alone all the way to Calvary. And so John has a completely different picture. If you ask someone, what day did Jesus die? They'll say Good Friday. And once again, my response is, you're right. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all with you, except in the Gospel of John, Jesus dies on a different day. It's not Friday. And someone like a, like a Christopher Hitchens, like a Richard Dawkins, aha, you can't even get your story straight. How can we trust you? The Bible's full of mistakes and errors. It's just a mess. Well, scripture's kind of my thing. So let me offer you a, let me offer you what's going on. John writes in 2031, I've written this so that you might believe. Luke writes in the very first couple verses, it seemed good for me to write an orderly account of all the things that have happened in our midst. So Luke tells you he's doing history. John doesn't tell you he's doing history. John tells you, I'm trying to get you to believe. They're very upfront about what they're doing. Let me offer you this. Perhaps when in John, Jesus carries the cross all the way to Calvary alone, it is, and there's other things in John that I could, it would take an hour to do, that John is deliberately comparing Jesus to Isaac. If you remember in Genesis 22, Isaac says, where's the wood, I mean, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham tells him to carry the wood all alone up up the mountain. Yes, Mm mm-hmm. That when Jesus does the same thing, the readers of John would go, oh, Jesus is another Isaac. He's a willing son. He's the obedient servant. He's willing to die. His death will mean we are a people. It will bring redemption and, 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 and all these things. Or you can just say Jesus carried the wood by himself. And it's a deliberate link. And they would have understood that, these Jewish background readers of John. When you say Jesus doesn't die on Friday, he dies in in the Gospel of John the day before Passover. Now, Passover could be on any day. It's not one of those Friday, Saturdays. It, It moves around. 
what dies the day before Passover? The Passover lamb. So when John is telling you Jesus dies the day before Passover, John is not trying to tell you with exact what day Jesus died. He's trying to tell you who he is when he died and why that death is meaningful, because he's the Passover lamb. His death brings redemption, a certain freedom from death, and brings us new life. Now, we're 2,000 years removed, and we don't have the Jewish background that the early readers of John did. But that's the way some of these stories function, and we're just not clued into that world. And so when we have these little discrepancies, it's actually trying to add meaning. It's, it's not trying to do what we want it to do. We want it to be the New York Times. Well, what the New York Times used to be, now who knows what, the, what they write is true. They're all over the map. But um, that's how these Gospels function. And I think sometimes we get threatened when we hear someone like Bart Ehrman or Dom, John Dominic Crossan, you know, talk about these things. But it's because the gospel writers are doing a little different agenda. And I think sometimes, not everybody in the pew, Aunt Margaret is not going to read the Bible like this. I have an Aunt Edna, so I call it my Aunt Edna rule. But I think there needs to be someone in the church sometimes to say, hey, listen, there might be a reason why the gospels say this, and here's what it is. Don't be frightened. It's actually a really good message if you just hang with me here a second. That's fascinating. You know, I was... Uh... Uh, I was thinking, you know, I, th I think some somebody said one time that John is the earliest book in the Gospels, enough of the four Gospels. So I, if he wrote that and with a lot of these symbolisms, I think a lot of them are gleaning off all these symbolisms of, of what it meant or for Jesus' life and his death would be for, for all of them. Um but um I really enjoyed our conversation. Um unfortunately we're kind of approaching the end here. But um, yeah, I wish I could continue more. But I do have one more question I wanted to ask you before we uh, end this, okay. and it's kind of a curveball. And I always give this to all my guests. And the last right. question is kind of a curveball. If you were to see God face to face right now, what is the one question that you wanted to ask Him? How long, oh Lord, are you going to put up with us? Or why do you put up with us? I think those are very deep questions. Simple, but deep. And the second one is, is where's my grandmother? <laughs> I, I need to find her. <laughs> Pastor Ward, thank you for uh, joining me today. I really enjoyed it. And I hope we could do this again sometime. Sure. Michael, thank you very much. Always enjoy conversations. Um, um thank you for giving me the offer and uh um dallas is a place i know well and not as well as you but been there numerous times and uh um so 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 greetings from chicago the people's republic of illinois and uh um um look 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 forward to many more conversations in the future have a wonderful week for the free state of texas thank you all right thank you michael